This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a message from Alexander Jun, who previously served as moderator of General Assembly. Alexander Jun is a professor at Azusa Pacific University in California, where he teaches in the Department of Higher Education and conducts research on equity and justice in higher education around the world. This was originally recorded in June 2018 at the PCA General Assembly in Atlanta, Georgia. I was just about to take a selfie with him, but no. Well, I bring you greetings from California, fathers and brothers, sisters and mothers. It is so good to be here. Uh, Things are fine on the left coast, don't worry. Uh, All the fruits and nuts are plenty. There are only a handful of Calvinists in California, uh, but we're small but mean. We're holding our own by God's grace. It is good to be with family. It is good to be with family. You all are my family, and I am yours. As I look back upon this year, uh, serving as your moderator, I am filled with overwhelming gratitude and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done. Uh, I had the time of my life, and uh, my heart is full, so praise the Lord. Or as we like to say in California, gracias a Dios. I've been practicing my Spanish in California. We, we need to. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you probably heard this epic meeting between two leaders of the United States and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. This is a historic event. Two nations and its citizens fought at one time, killed and died over 60 years ago. I was told not to talk about the war between the North and the South when you come to the PCA, but I I have to. Uh, Born in the United States, but being ethnically Korean, I grew up hearing these stories of suffering from family and friends about the atrocities of the Japanese occupation of a once united Korea. And then later, horrific stories of war that divided North and South. It's a sad, sad history for the Korean people. A profound sadness that in Korean there's a word called Han. We use it in Korean often, and this profound sadness is often marked, masked, uh, by the glitz and glamour and popularity of K-pop music and Korean dramas, and this meteoric economic rise in South Korea. In fact, many of my uh, uh, friends, parents and grandparents of Korean Americans still hold some bitterness and hatred 
toward their Japanese colonizers, perhaps with good reason. Some Koreans still refuse to purchase Japanese products, no cars, no televisions. So deep is this animosity toward their enemy, I think some people cannot even imagine that this group, anything good would come out. No kindness and no acts of mercy. So let me ask you as we get started here, friends, is there anyone in your life that you harbor such bitterness and hatred toward? Do you want to be more loving? Do you want to become more compassionate? Well, then this parable is for you because it shows how gospel love can cross any and all borders and boundaries. As I get started, uh, I'm reminded of the, the subject heading, which I'm told is not inspired, of the Good Samaritan. Um, Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, uh, assures me that all the subject headings are not inspired. So it's interesting as I think about this, the Good Samaritan. Now, why would it be the Good Samaritan? What would the opposite be? That's sort of like the oxymoron, right? Jumbo shrimp. Um, there's a reason to include the descriptor good because the listener, the listener at the time would understand that when you talked about Samaritans, the audience would know, have prior knowledge, that Samaritans were assumed to not be good, according to the Jews. So this dialogue between the lawyer and our Lord uh, captures this underlying tension between two people groups, Jews and Samaritans. They do not get along. Now, I'm not sure uh, why the two groups don't get along. Samaritans are recorded as being ethnically Jewish, perhaps half-Jewish. Uh, they had intermarried with other people groups. Samaritans had uh, different worship practices, and they believed only in the Pentateuch. But perhaps the fact that you would leave your own ethnic group and marry outside of your tribe, outside of your family, was reason enough for these religiously uh, righteous Jews to despise the other and look down on them. I don't know. But the story does remind me that with the arrival of Jesus, change was coming. The way that religious leaders handled their day-to-day -day religious practices, and that included hatred and disregard for other ethnic groups, was about to be disrupted. Now they were required to live and love in a radically new way. So there are a lot of characters in this scene, but I would like to focus just on three specific characters this afternoon. The lawyer, the Samaritan, and the victim. The lawyer, the Samaritan, and the victim. For let's talk about the lawyer first. The backdrop of this context leading up to this exchange is fascinating. Throughout scripture, Jesus is seen confronting the misguided thinking of religious leaders. They are zealous and pious leaders who think they have the right answers in their theology. Throughout scripture, in fact, we see that Jesus is illustrating what the kingdom of God is like. And this parable has been used to teach uh, Christians and others about the need for social service. And in fact, even my secular friends often reference uh, the Good Samaritan passage as they engage in social justice. But let me be clear, please know this, we must not separate the love of neighbor with the love of God, as our 46th General Assembly theme so appropriately highlights. We need both. John Stott once stated it this way, it is impossible to truly be converted to God without being thereby converted to our neighbor. We need both. 
So we notice in this passage that uh, between the lawyer and our Lord that Jesus uses the parable to show the lawyer a deeper problem with his heart. In asking this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer reveals a fundamental flaw in his thinking and his approach to God. And our Lord offers this parable and begins what I would call a spiritual open heart surgery for all to see. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, it's a strange question, isn't it? Normally, when you inherit something, you don't do something to get it. That's not how inheritance works. So the question then presupposes some pretty fundamental misconceptions about inheritance. The lawyer is essentially a legalist whose life is oriented around performance, a works-based approach to his faith. That's why he's asking the question, what must I do? Rather than asking the question, how can I receive or believe? We see Jesus flipping the script here and posing a question back to the lawyer and asks him, you know the law, you're the expert, what does the law say? And the lawyer answers uh, with a great response that summarizes the Decalogue in Exodus 20 along with Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And this speaks to the heart of eternal life. Again, a great response. It demonstrated his orthodoxy. But does it? The lawyer wasn't really orthodox, was he? The lawyer was a legalist. In fact, he was quite unorthodox, um, not understanding the doctrines of grace. Perhaps sometimes we, too, struggle to know the difference. But Jesus knew the lawyer's heart, that even all the orthodoxy in the world, this man was not able to reconcile preferential treatment that went on with one group versus another. Well, Jesus does affirm his response. He says, what you say is right. But the lawyer continues to press, and he says, who is my neighbor? Now mark this, in verse 29, desiring to justify himself is key here. Oh, this poor lawyer. Or as some of you might say, now bless his heart. <laughs> yeah, I picked up a little bit of southern uh, uh, phrases in my time in this denomination. So uh, people had used that a lot on me. I didn't understand it wasn't a blessing. Until way later. So thank you for telling me. And bless your heart. You see here, he is trying to limit the overall number of people that he has to love. He wants to hear the bare minimum standard requirement. He wants to compartmentalize his love. He is really uh, employing what I call the minimax principle, right? Minimum investment, maximum return. An example for me, uh, on a personal level, has anyone approached you? This happens to me occasionally. Elder Alex, um, I know I need to give, but do I have to give before taxes or after taxes? The question in and of itself reveals much about one's heart, doesn't it? So Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with a story. And in this story, he talks about a wounded traveler and the two people who passed him by. I'll go relatively quickly through this, but the first person he mentions is the priest. Now, who is the priest? The priest would be like the Golden State Warriors of religion. You know, the champions can do no wrong. The Levite, silver medal. Nice try, Cavaliers. Still very, very, very good. Uh, these examples of established religion, uh, religious professionals, for whatever reason, chose to walk on by, probably came as a big shock to the listener. 
Now, the third person in this example, uh, one might expect Jesus to give an example of a, a, a lay person Israelite, perhaps a warrior's fan. Uh, but no, Jesus drops his bomb and says, uh, the person who shows mercy is the Samaritan. Now, there was this long-standing distrust, hatred, and broken fellowship between these two people groups. In offering this example, our Lord calls our uh, listening Jewish audience on their blind spots. Sometimes it seems that all the good theology that we have cannot prevent us from our own blind spots. Daryl Bach is quoted as saying uh, that probably for the neighbor, uh, for the lawyer, neighbor meant someone within Israel. He never would have considered a neighbor to be outside of the nation of Israel. Never would have considered your neighbor to be your enemy. So let's talk about the Samaritan. Who is the Samaritan? The Samaritan is the last person you would ever expect to show mercy to a Jew. The Samaritan here is the hero of this parable. He meets basic human needs through kindness and his deeds. Now, I would argue that these deeds were in fact costly, sacrificial, and quite audacious. We see what he did here, but we also see what the Samaritan did not do in this context. He did not look upon the the victim and simply say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. He took action. He did not argue for the role of the church and the danger of a slippery slope if you were to get involved. He did not begin to rehash all the reasons why these people are my enemies and ought to be despised. He did not blame the victim or question why were you there in the first place? What did you do or what didn't you do to bring this affliction upon yourself? No. The Samaritan had compassion. The Samaritan gives all that he has, his time, his money, bandages, oil, wine, his animal, but ultimately his heart of compassion. There was a cost. Friends, there is always a cost. If you're enjoying hearing this message by Alex Jun and would like to hear a more personal conversation with him, check out the PCA Church Leader Podcast on the PCA RBI Network. Alex Jun appeared on the first episode of this series, where he was asked tough questions like whether he refers to his hairstyle as a ponytail or a man bun. The PCA Church Leader Podcast, presented by PCA Retirement and Benefits, provides PCA church leaders with tools, tips, and everyday insights from other PCA church leaders. You can find the PCA Church Leader Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or online at pcarbi.org forward slash podcast. So it begs the question, why did the Samaritan do what he did? The Samaritan helps this Jew, an enemy, while being under no obligation to do so. It's one thing to help a friend. It's an entirely different matter to help your enemy. So let me ask you this question. What people group simply causes your stomach to turn at the mere mention of their name? Believe it or not, for some people in the world, that word is Christian. I love how Scott Sauls, in one of his books, uh, From Weakness to Strengths, describes the Samaritan. 
He says this, But the Samaritan, the true neighbor, who was labeled by every Jew, not as a friend to be trusted, but as an enemy to be avoided, risks his life to care for the man. You might say, based on the parable, that the Samaritan loves the Jewish poor better than Jews love their own poor. Put another way, he loves his enemy even better than his enemies love each other. In a world where people of faith are sometimes treated as the enemy in secular society, are Christian leaders in particular thinking like the Samaritan? If not, we should be. Amen. A great book, by the way. I highly recommend it. Perhaps we want to be recognized as the Samaritan, the one who shows mercy, being the good example that the Lord uses to convict and rebuke others. I know I do. But alas, the reality is, I'm the religious leader, saying the right things and knowing the right things. But when the time comes for me to show mercy, rather than being full of compassion, I'm full of excuses. How about you? However, dear Christian, guilt cannot and must not be the reason for us to engage. So what is the motivation to pursue mercy for the stranger, to, to pursue mercy for our enemy? Why did the Samaritan do what he did? Well, the key is shown in verse 33, but the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion is the same word that the Bible uses to describe the kind of love that God has for us. Hesed, kindness. This hesed, kindness, is self-giving and sacrificial. The Samaritan loved his neighbor with the very same love that God loved us. We find most clearly that Christ is who God's hesed kindness was to us on the cross. So in response to this question, who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone who is hurting right in front of you. Moreover, your neighbor is anyone who you have characterized as your enemy, when your enemy is also hurting right in front of you. Perhaps whoever is your moral, political, or ideological enemy, God is calling us to love them. Love them locally and love them globally. Let me speak a moment about global gospel neighboring love. Harken back to my example of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, we pray a lot for gospel expansion in the world. When you see leaders of the United States and North Korea shaking hands and embracing, what do you feel? What is your initial response? Do you see with gospel eyes or do you see with earthly eyes? Sometimes our confessional theology collides with our functional theology, does it not? You might see these images of North Korea and American, and your American blood starts to get pumping. Perhaps cynicism will set in. You wonder, what kind of media circus has led to this public display of false affection? I'm as cynical as they come, believe me. But for me, I must confess, when I first saw the images about a month ago of South Korean president and North Korean president embracing, I wept. I wept because growing up, all I heard were stories and prayers that we'd be unified, that we would be together again. And I know there was cynicism a month ago when that happened. You've got to understand this from another perspective for me. We'd always prayed, not just for unification, but that the gospel would go to North Korea. 
Have we been praying that way? Even to see two leaders getting together, and maybe some of you can relate to this, if you come from a broken family or children of divorce, perhaps, you know, mom and dad never held hands, they never got together. You know, they were always apart, always bickering, always arguing. But that one moment where they held hands, it allowed me to dream of what was possible. What was possible? We can understand that. And we dreamed about a better time. It reminds us of the fall, doesn't it? Our fallen state and broken fellowship. It's not the way the world should be. But it is right now, this side of heaven. This broken relationship is a result of the fallen world. But perhaps closer to home, we are reminded of the broken fellowship with one another. A few years ago, I had a chance to visit South Korea. And I met some Christians, some university colleagues and graduate students who were Christians. And I just assumed that everybody was praying the same thing that Korean Americans had been praying, that uh, we all longed to see the gospel going to North Korea. And perhaps the way to do that would be through um, opening the doors. But I was quite surprised that a vast majority of the people that I talked to had no interest in seeing the two countries be united. It would devastate the economy, they said. Others said, this is a threat to national security. And I thought, I thought fellow Christians also saw the same thing and prayed the same thing that the gospel would go in. But they were seeing with their national eyes, perhaps not with their Christian eyes. Well, how about here in the United States? When we pray and pray and pray that the Lord would use the gospel to reach the lost, perhaps for our Muslim friends, and our churches are thinking about sending one unit to a Muslim country. Usually somebody's a little awkward. Let's send them to the MTW. They say they need 1%. But the Lord answers the prayers of all of the churches and all of his children, right? The Lord answers in abundance. What does he do? He brings a bunch of people here to us. And what is our response? That's not how we prayed, Lord. That's not what we meant. I don't want them in my neighborhoods. I'll go on a short-term mission trip, but I don't know what to do if they come into my community. Over there, not over here. Are our answers when we hear, when we hear Jesus say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. That's a Christian answer. When you say, I was a stranger and you tried to get rid of me. That's an entirely different answer, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we hold dual citizenship. We all hold dual citizenship. One is here on earth and the other one is in heaven. When our responses to opportunities for mercy are primarily as citizens of a nation rather than as citizens of heaven, we may need to seriously reevaluate our identity. I'm so thankful for MTW and MNA, Pat Hatch, our sister, and others who are involved in refugee ministry. It is really encouraging to see, and we should follow their lead. We need to hold on to multiple realities as well. F. Scott Fitzgerald is famously quoted as saying, the test of a first-rate mind is to be able to hold on to two seemingly contradictory thoughts at the same time and still be able to function. You can fundamentally disagree morally and ideologically with someone and still love them and see them in the imago Dei, made in the image of God. You can despise someone's politics and lifestyle and still show mercy and charity and grace. I know for some of you, you're thinking, this simply means, how do I get through Thanksgiving dinner? Make no mistake, our, our love of sound biblical theology toward God should lead us to deep love of our neighbor. Well, let me speak briefly about the victim. 
We don't know a lot about the victim. The Bible doesn't talk much about the victim, and commentaries don't go into great detail, detail about the victim. And I'm reminded how true that is of victims, is it not? They are usually voiceless, aren't they? We see this time and again in our society. We see it time and again in our churches. But what we do know about the victim is he is in dire straits. He is desperate, in desperate need for compassion. Friends, we are that dead person in need of saving. We are the ones in need of help. We are the ones in need of a good Samaritan. Someone to help us, to heal us, and to save us. Jesus found us, not half dead, completely dead in our sins. We were not just some random person on the street. We were his enemy, and he loved us still. Jesus does not mount us on a donkey. He mounts us on his own back and carries us to the cross. Ironically, it's the Samaritan who's actually telling the story, this parable. Jesus Christ is our ultimate Samaritan who paid a great cost. He gave up everything to save his people. So brothers and sisters, let's return to the original question. What can we do to inherit eternal life? Absolutely nothing. You inherit eternal life not by what you can do, but by embracing what Jesus has done. Let me quote Scott Sauls once again here, who said, We ought to take every opportunity to surprise our neighbors, especially those who do not believe as we do. Surprise them with life-giving, otherworldly love. Imagine, if you would, with me, just for a moment. Imagine if Christians demonstrated loving mercy to the LGBTQ community in ways that would inspire them and surprise them. Not because they deserve it. We certainly didn't deserve the grace and mercy bestowed upon us. We do it because we love them. Imagine if Christians were to be the first ones to reach out to support refugees and strangers in your community. Imagine if Christians were the spiritual first responders to crises, to our hurting neighbors, despite, despite ideological and moral differences that we may have had with them. Oh, Presbyterian Church in America, may we emulate the Samaritan neighbor, Jesus, who being rejected and scorned by the world he created, showed mercy to his enemy. Friends, in conclusion, I want to offer up this word of exhortation. Uh, we have no enemies here. We are all brothers and sisters united in the Lord, and I pray that the Lord will remind us of this as we move forward with assembly business. Yes, I know, we all have nuclear capabilities. We keep that in our hip pocket, just in case. But I'm reminded of this quote by Hans Beth, a nuclear physicist and Nobel Prize winner. If we fight a war and win it with H-bombs, what history will remember is not the ideals that we were fighting for, but the methods we used to accomplish them. May the Lord bless you, and may the Lord be pleased and glorified as we convene for the 46th General Assembly. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. 
They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.